Champions Mojo is part of the CG Sports Network. We have a responsibility to serve our communities. We have a responsibility to fight for what we believe is right. We have a responsibility to stand up and use our voices. Welcome to the award-winning Champions Mojo, hosted by two world record-holding athletes and health, life, and leadership coaches. Be inspired as you listen to Conversations with Champions. And now, your hosts, Kelly Palace and Maria Parker. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Champions Mojo podcast. And as usual, I am co-hosting with Maria Parker. Hey, Maria. Hi, Kelly. Great to be here today. Oh, Maria, I know you and I are both super excited. Before we give our guest her proper introduction, let's just welcome her to the show. Hello, Miss Virginia Walden Ford. Welcome to Champions Mojo. Yes, welcome. Thank you. I am so delighted to be here. Thank you all for having me. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we are going to give you the proper introduction, which you deserve. Virginia Walden Ford is an incredible leader and a champion. So if you're a a regular listener to Champions Mojo, you know we talk to a lot of athletic champions, but we love the dual meaning of champion. So champion is winning, triumphing at life, but also championing a cause. And so uh, Miss Virginia is a champion of a great cause, which you're going to learn more about, but you you may know her from the Netflix movie, Miss Virginia, which is about her life and it stars Uzo Adubo and uh, also Uzo plays Miss Virginia in the movie and Matthew Modine, who plays her attorney, Cliff Williams, who is also a champion with her cause. Miss Virginia's role as one of America's most important and historically significant voices for parent empowerment. And she walks the halls of uh, the U.S. Capitol and has spent her lifetime fighting to create new educational opportunities for children and families. But there's more on this celebrity, Maria. Could you share that? Sure. Uh, as a mother, Virginia fought to create educational opportunities for her three children and other children living in the Washington, D.C. area when she realized that because they lived in the wrong area, the wrong zip code, they weren't, they weren't getting the education they deserved. In 1998, she and a group of parents took action at the grassroots level to help create a program to provide scholarships for low-income children to attend private schools. Since then, she spent her life educating and encouraging other parents to learn about school choice options. And besides the major motion picture, Miss Virginia, she's the author of two books, most recently, School Choice, A Legacy to Keep. So without further ado, welcome, Miss Virginia. Thank you. Again, it's great to be here. I, wa I want to just start off creating a little picture um, for this cause that you championed in 1998. And, and we're not talking 50 years ago. When you know, when I read your book and watched the movie, I, I was thinking, gosh, this seems like something that would have happened in 1998. But Maria and I are both Virginia girls. We grew up in the D.C. area. So we're we're right. We know, you know, the area that you lived in, the, the area that we're talking about. And so what happened in 1998 uh, is is you and your three children were living in the D.C. area and you saw this huge disparity between the education availability for low-income children versus uh, those with a high income. And it was just a huge disparity. And it, it's, a, it's a poignant story. Can you share with us the kind of initial uh, spark that got this fire blazing? Like, tell us a story, um, you know, what, what was it that just kicked you over that made you say, I got to do something? Well, you know, in interestingly enough, Kelly, I um, my two of my kids really were pretty, um, you know, driven educationally, so they were doing pretty well. Um, but my youngest son, William, was really struggling in school, and he also was getting pulled into negative things in the community. Um, I mean, he was selling drugs and running around with a a really, really tough gang. And he was only 13, 14, 15 years old during this time. That was when I saw that something had to be done. I could no longer sit back and just watch my child fail. I saw too many children in that community that were in trouble, in jail, um, you know, just 
really have out of not in school. And William was one of those kind of kids that I would take him to school and he'd watch my car pull off and then he'd leave. And hmm. so I I was always getting these calls saying, William's not in school. And I was going, yeah, he is in school. I dropped him off this morning. And they would say, well, he's not here now. And it became very clear that I had to do something to save my child. But I didn't know what. I mean, I had, I was um, working hard to just provide a roof over the my children's heads and to feed them. And I didn't even know how to get started. And uh, somebody said to me, you know, you need to go to the school board and you need to go to talk to teachers. Well, teachers usually dismiss me uh, after my first sentence. And they say, you know, he's not worth fighting for. And, um, you know, he's going to end up in the street. I don't even know why you're wasting your time. And teachers actually said that to me. And then I'd go to school board meetings and try to talk about the children in our community, including my own, which were failing. And they'd listen for a minute and go to the next thing on the agenda. And it was just hard for me to to even imagine what what I could do. I mean, I was a single mother, young, you know, trying to make my way in the world with absolutely no help. And um I didn't know what to do. And I did not enjoy being in public. I did not enjoy standing in front and talking to people. I was one of those parents that sat back and let everybody else do the talking. I build the scenery, I make the costumes, I bake the cake, but I didn't want to be the president. I wanted to be the, the on the committee, you know. And um, But it became really clear to me that somebody has to say something. I was seeing too many kids in our neighborhood, not just the community, but just in my block that were not doing well. We all had single mothers that were trying to make it. And, and you know, it became just really clear to me that I had to speak up, you know, and I had to put aside whatever fears I had of speaking in public. I mean, I was so bad that they'd ask me to read the scripture at church and I couldn't do it. I'd get faint. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I wow. really did not like speaking in public. And, uh, but you know, what I learned is that when, when you're talking about your child or you're talking about something that's really, really important to you, you find the words, the words come from somewhere. And, and, and I could, all of a sudden I began to be able to talk about the children and to talk about what was happening with my son. And, but that's pretty much the only thing I can talk about. I could at that point, at least. I mean, you give me a, 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 another subject and then I, I get faint again, but I can talk <laughs> about what kids needed and what I needed to do to make that happen or what people needed to do to make that happen. And that was kind of how it started. I was really um, lucky because I spoke uh, before the, Dick Army's Education and Task Force Committee in 1997. And evidently I made an impact on them. So they started encouraging me to go and talk in the communities and do that kind of thing. And it was hard, but it became so good. It empowered me. It empowered the people I spoke with. And um, and that was kind of the beginning of it. It just went from there. I'm, I'm just, I stuck with it. I um, encouraged other parents to stick with it. I led all kind of meetings and efforts, which just built up my confidence in myself. And um, and before I know it, but this went on for a long time, you know, before we got to where we knew we could make a difference in D.C. at least. I am so inspired by that part of the stories. What you did is amazing. And, but, but the way you overcame, I mean, I know what it's like to be afraid to speak in front of people. So my, my question for you, and I think other, this will help people is, you know, those first five, 10, 15, 20 times that you had to stand up and, and, and when you were quaking in your boots you know, what yeah. did you draw on? How did you, you know, how did you overcome that just, you know, terror? You know, I I prayed. I, I'm going to tell you, I'll be honest. In the beginning, when I knew it, that was going to happen, I would say, Lord, just put the words in my mouth and give me the courage to say them, period. That, that was what I did. But one time, funny story, 
one time I decided I'd have a glass of wine and I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't drink. And so I had my little glass of wine and then I was too drunk to speak because it just went right to my head. But somehow I calmed down and I managed to get a speech, but that never happened again. I, I never took a sip of wine, but no, it was that. So wine but is not most, the way. No, no, but mostly I prayed, and but also, and this is something that people have told me has been helpful. I looked at the people in the audience and I looked at their faces and I thought to myself, what can I say that will help them? You know, because there were always frowns or sad faces. And the first person that smiled would give me the courage to speak. You know, and um, and I would, I would. I, it was amazing. I watched faces light up, and and people saying, "This is information I can use," and and maybe she really can help me. But if you don't mind, I can tell you about the very first time I spoke to a huge group was in D.C. and Southeast and uh, public housing project, where it was mandatory to come to this particular meeting. So they didn't want to be there. And it was a public housing project with about 600 families. And so it was all these mothers, mostly mothers, sitting out there rolling their eyes, not wanting to be there, but they had to be there. And um, the lady who ran it was this wonderful, kind lady that said, uh, when you get up there, tell your story, tell your story. And I said, okay. And first I started off just giving them some basic information. And I saw quickly that wasn't getting them. They were still turning heads and rolling eyes and not listening. But then I said, but I have a son and I'm so scared for him. And this is why I'm afraid for him. And then I told them my story and how afraid I was of losing William to the streets. And in the movie, they call him James, but his name is William. And I was terrified. I didn't want my child to, to be a part of the statistics of kids that, especially African-American boys, that end up in jail or on the streets or drug addicted. And I was scared. And I told them that, and, and I looked, I watched and one by one, people started listening. One by one, faces started looking into mine. And I realized that right at that moment, I was not just somebody speaking at a meeting they really didn't want to be in. I was somebody that was a mother just like them um, that they could connect with and they could believe in. That was, that was really a, a great defining moment for my for the work I was um, going to do. And, uh, but it also gave me a sense of, I may, maybe I can make a difference. Maybe I can do something special. I don't know, but when you trust it, when all of a sudden somebody, you can see in somebody's face that they believe you, or they believe that you can make a difference in their life, it, it, it's empowering. It's, it's incredible. It, it was an incredible moment for me, and I saw it. And from that point on, I knew that a part of all of this was the, keeping people trusting, telling them the truth, making hopefully that they would believe what I was saying. I mean, these communities, poor communities, black, white, doesn't matter. They're so accustomed to people coming into the community saying, we're going to do something to change your lives. I mean, and then they didn't, or they disappear, or they would do something that would, would not, that would be detrimental to their lives. And I knew that as long as I fulfill my promise to them, that together we could make a difference. And we did. So that's what I, I would love our listeners to hear. So, 
tell us what what difference you made because we we painted the picture and again Maria and I know this area so I know I had a lot of friends I was born in Washington DC born in George Washington Hospital and no so <laughs> yep right there I am a DC girl so I know that any of my friends that lived in DC we were 6 miles from the White House where I grew up we were in northern Virginia we had A rated schools Fairfax County some of the best schools you can get but I yep. knew any of my friends that lived in DC went to private schools yep. because the DC schools were terrible. So that's they what were. you were, you were fighting this. So tell our listeners like, so what is it that you accomplished and what were some of the biggest obstacles to get there? And what were you promising these people? Like, so what, it, cause it, it was more than just standing up and telling people, we can make a difference. It was yeah. you changing, changing law, changing huge obstacles. So tell us what did you accomplish and, and what were some of the biggest obstacles? Well, okay. First and foremost, you said it. DC has some of the worst schools in, in that region. And, uh, and it was so ridiculous to me that Washington DC, the nature's capital had these schools that were not serving kids well, and they were violent and, you know, kids were at the time that we began to fight our fight, the dropout rate was 46% oh, in public schools and, and there was violence in the schools and, uh, and, Girls were getting pregnant at alarming rates at 15, 16 years old, and and boys were going at alarming rates going to jail. So I knew what we needed to do, what we had to do was provide a way for them to see another educational environment, another something else that would get them interested and um and want them to become involved in their own education. And, and that, in to us at that time, there are 146 private schools in DC. And at that time, we were wanting to provide some kind of resources for kids to go to private schools in DC. And, and in the background, work with DCPS to get schools going doing better. It was like a you know, Harriet Tubman, she took 600 slaves out of slavery, but she worked behind the scenes to abolish slavery. So that's kind of the way I thought of it. I'm going to get kids out of DCPS now, and then we're going to work hard to make sure that the kids that have to remain get a better education. We're all going to work together for the benefit of kids. So our proposal was to a scholarship program that would provide resources for kids to go to private schools and the private schools would be partners with the parents in educating their children. And um, so what we did is we went around and talked to all the private schools who were willing to be partners to this kind of proposal and, um, and to make sure that kids, many of them were looking to in change the, the demographics of their school, they wanted African-American, Hispanic, and Asian kids in their schools, and this would provide a way to be able to do that. So it, it created diversity in the public, in the private schools in D.C. But because the way D.C. is run, we had to go to Congress, you know, and anybody, the, even though we have mayor and city council, our primary education money or some monies come from the federal government. So we, we had to go to the federal government. Now, Cliff Williams in the movie represents a whole bunch of different members of Congress. We just put them together in one person. Ah. So in every scene in the movie, I see a different member of Congress that I work with in this one man. And Matthew Mardin did an amazing job of, of doing that where it felt good me. And I could see all those great members of Congress that I work with. So we went to Congress and proposed that a scholarship program be put in place, that, uh, be funded for um, $2, 000, uh, $2 million, which would have provided scholarships for a couple of thousand kids. And uh, But then we had to take it through Congress. And, and so when you have a, a federal program that you're fighting for in Congress, you have to go to all these different members of Congress who have no vested interest in DC. 
they didn't care about DC kids. I mean, they cared about the people in their states that voted for them. And so we had to convince them, the, the, the groups that I was working with, we, we knew we had to convince them that DC kids mattered, you know, and that this program should be put in place to allow DC kids to have something available to them that would give them a better educational experience. And so that's what we did, it, except they didn't bet on us having thousands of parents doing this. And at the height of the fight, there were probably more than 2,000 parents, low income, black, white, Hispanic, Asian families involved in the legislative fight. And each one of those families believed what I told them. Somebody always said, I didn't wake up wanting to be the face of this fight, but somebody has to be the face of the fight and somebody has to be willing to do it. And I was. And um, they believed what I said. That's why I, I loved them so much and I love our fight so much because what I said to them was, we are going to find a way to make sure our children have resources to go to schools that will help them, you know, thrive in educational environments. And um, and they believed me. And <laughs> my sisters didn't believe me, so I was like surprised. But one of the parents told me one time, there's something about your face. It's something that when you speak to people, we believe you, we trust you. And any leader knows that one of the first things that's important for any cause, whether it's education or whatever, is that you have a leader that you can trust, that you can believe in. And so initially that was important to me, trying to make sure that they believed in me and they trusted me, but it became, and, and that's why um, I am called grandma, a mama, a big sister by thousands of people, <laughs> you know, her. because that's what they needed to be to me. And that's what I, I needed to be to them. And uh, I remember my children saying to me, that lady just called you mama, mama. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> does she have to? And, and, but I became like a mother. And for some of the younger families, I became like grandma. And all the kids call me Miss Virginia, Grandma, or, you know, you become this unit. And even though it's thousands of people, it's a, it's a wonderful unit. And whatever you're fighting for or whatever you're leading, that becomes really necessary in, in making sure that you can move forward with whatever, you, whatever your goal is. And that's what we did. We, we became this family. And people laugh and they say, a family of 2000, yeah. <laughs> we were this family and, and you know, I got to be mama, but sometimes there were others who had stepped up into a different kind of role and they got to be the mamas. And, and so it was more than just a legislative fight. It was a family and there was an army too, but it was a family. And we believed in each other and they believed what I said but we had to convince Congress to believe us, and we did. And we went to every member of Congress's office, um, in the House, in the Senate, and left our calling card or asked for a meeting or just wrote our names on the sign-in sheets to let them know, because somebody has said prior to us starting this fight that DC parents would never fight for their children. That that you know there there was such a a negative feeling about low income parents in D.C. that somebody actually said to me, "Oh, you're not gonna get people to fight for this." And I went, "We'll see." And so when we did, people were surprised. You know, they were surprised at how many people stepped up and how many people testified before Congress. Excuse me, and how many people found their voices. My, my mantra is find your voice. Mm. And, and, you know, I, will I, listen. one of the things you are such a great leader because this is not a pack of Girl Scouts. This is not a, a troop of, <laughs> of uh, West Point cadets. These, You're right. some, one of the most poignant scenes in the movie for me was that you got a, 
that, that they show a kid off the street who's a drug dealer. He's in trouble. But you were people that rallied around you were some of uh, some some criminals, some really yeah. bad seeds. And they collected signatures. And yeah. I don't want to spoil the movie, but there is a scene in there that made me cry. And I think you know which one I'm talking about. I, but, I do. It makes me cry, too. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so the people that you got to rally around this cause were the forgotten and the people who never had a voice. So um, tell us a little bit more about how people can find their voice. You know, we tell people, Kelly, that every, everybody has a story, everybody. And, you know, when you're sitting around saying, I have nothing to say, or my life doesn't mean anything, we show parents the value of not only their lives, but of many things they've done. Um, my past always said, there's a blessing in everything you do. You just got to find it sometime. And, and that's sort of our message to parents who were not accustomed to speaking out. Not acc- they, didn't, you know, they didn't feel like they had the right to speak out. You know, they didn't feel that any, not only would nobody listen, but they didn't even deserve to be able to, you know, and we just taught them that they have to recognize the value in their lives and they have to recognize that they have a story. And, and this, this is a good story. We were um, talking to members of Congress and we were going to the head of the um, appropriations committee for the house who had issued a statement the day before saying, I will never vote for a scholarship program for DC. And we said, okay, you haven't dealt with us yet. (laughs) So the next day we went to his office and it was about maybe 50 or 60 of us. And we signed his little book and right as we were signing, he walked in and he asked his his assistant or uh, receptionist, I guess, who are these people? And uh, of course, we had T-shirts that said "DC Parents School Choice," so that wasn't too hard. And he said, um, when she told him, he said, "Well, maybe I need to talk to them." Hmm. And I said, "That's a really good idea." And um, he found he went to his conference room. He found seats for all of us, and for two and a half hours, he listened to our stories two and a half hours and he was so touched visibly and but we didn't even realize how touched he was until the next day when he recommended that people vote for this program and that he was going to be the first vote in in support and he had been adamant about not supporting this program so we learned that if we are Uh, we carry ourselves with dignity and information and we speak our stories that all kinds of things couldn't happen. And they did. (laughs) So beautiful. (laughs) It was great. I love that. So, you know, I, 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 you didn't become this lioness that you are or have been for the last 20 years overnight. And you, you know, right. So, no, no. you know, you, you told us sort of the why, you know, you had the son, you love your son, he was failing. But, you know, for, for those of us who might feel like, oh, I could never do that or I could never become that, you know, are you surprised looking back at, you know, the woman that you were as, you know, a young single mom to this in- lioness? That's, I mean, I, I can't, I was oh, trying to think you. of another word. <laughs> You know, that you are now. Are you surprised? And what encouragement do you have for others who might say, I could never do that? I could never become a leader like that. I am surprised sometimes. Delighted, but surprised. I mean, uh, I I just talked to somebody the other day that kind of asked me something similar. And I went, never in 5,000 million years would I have thought that I would become a speaker for anything. You know, that just wasn't who I was. And yet, if you go far back until when I was a teenager, I did display some leadership qualities. I was um, saved when I was 17 and I was a president of the youth group at the church. But it didn't require going out and speaking to a whole bunch of people. It required praying. And I thought I was pretty good at that. But, you know, but then I also had to remember that 
I was one of uh, um, the second group, the largest group of black kids to go into the Little Rock Central High School after the Little Rock Nine. Now the Little Rock Nine were nine black kids that went in and the governor um, barred the door and called out Arkansas state troops and there were crowds of people that were mean to them and they really had a really difficult time but they were strong and full of courage and they went into central the nine of them despite all the, the obstacles that got in their way and and uh and I was only six years old when that happened but I remember even at six years old understanding that there was something really serious going on. And my parents were civil were teachers and civil rights activists. And and I remember in gatherings, they would put the kids in a little room, but we would listen to them pray and talk about, you know, how difficult this was. And 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 everybody was playing, but for some reason I took that I understood something was going on even at six years old. And uh, so as time went on um, you know, I would see things and I was involved to a certain extent, but I was never the leader of anything. And then when I um, entered Little Rock Central High School, you know, we weren't, you know how kids are excited to, to go to high school? Well, I didn't want to go to Little Rock Central High School. I wanted to go to the all black high school in Little Rock. And um, and I was adamant with my parents about it. I don't want to go there. I want to follow Gail, my older sister, and I want to, you know, be on the drill team, and I want to do all these things, and the boys were cute over there and all that. My parents just totally ignored me and said, you are going to Central. But what had happened was the federal government had come to, you know, the, the in during the Little Rock Nine um, time, Governor and President Eisenhower sent in federal troops to protect the Little Rock Nine for the entire year they were in they, that they entered the school. And so in, in the 60s, I won't age myself, but in the 60s, <laughs> late 60s, um, the federal government came back and said, you, Little Rock, you have to continue the desegregation process. We sent federal troops here and it doesn't look good. So you need to send some more black kids in the central. So my parents, like I said, were teachers. All of their friends were teachers or preachers or lawyers or civil rights activists. And um, they kind of handpicked 139 of us to go to Central. And uh, I didn't want to be one of them. I, I was mad. But the first day of school, but I lost, you know, I lost my mom and daddy one. And the first day of school when dad was dropping, I have an identical twin. So the first day of school when dad was dropping Harriet and I off to school, I said, again, I don't want to go here, daddy. And instead of fussing at me or dismissing me, he said, Jenny, you have a response. They, uh, you know, they call me Jenny, my nickname. You have a responsibility to go to that school to do well, to make a difference. You have a responsibility. Do you not understand that? You have younger sisters. And if you don't do well at Central, how will that look to them? And I was 14 and and, and I remember thinking, well, that makes sense. You should have said that to me before now. It made sense. And that's something I've carried forever. I mean, I hear my father's words even now, 50 years later. I hear him saying, you have a responsibility to make a difference. So what I tell people who are in the midst of, of making decisions to go after their goals or dreams or to fight for a cause or whatever, I say, you know, we have a responsibility to serve our communities. We have a responsibility to fight for what we believe is right. We have a responsibility to stand up and use our voices. And no matter what, nobody can stop you. The constitution provides for you to use your voice. And we are Americans. And so, and it, it like my father affected me all those years ago, that seems to really, um, affect 
parents or or people that I'm talking to about going forward, you know, everybody wants to know that their lives make a difference, that their lives are important, and that they can do things that can change the world. Never would I thought that this would have happened the way it happened. Never would I thought that I'd had the opportunity and the privilege to change the world. And I thank God every day for allowing me to be able to be a part of making a difference. Because if anybody knows, you know, DC is the fishbowl. And so for us to be successful in DC really inspired a lot of people around the country who said, well, if they can do it in DC, we can certainly do it here, wherever. And, uh, and I've heard from parents if all over America saying to me, I did it because I knew you could, you did it. And uh, that makes me, it really pleases me because that's all I ever wanted to say. We can do this game. We don't have to sit around and watch our children fail and watch our children get in trouble and watch our children not be inspired or, or thrive in education. We can say something. And that's what we do. Ah, oh, so, so such nuggets, such amazing. And, oh, you know, yes. we, we have a lot of young listeners that may not even the, the, the words all black high school don't even oh, no. they don't even I mean, that's just like that is so far in history. Thank goodness that I know they don't. Yeah. even. So so you telling your story is such a is such a great testament to how things do change. And uh, it, it's well, amazing. And I, we just encourage people to read the book, watch yeah. the movie. It's on yeah. Netflix. Yeah. Watch it tonight. Um, and, and, I, and I just want to, you know, you have a responsibility to make a difference. How yes. many people have heard that? I'm going to tell my go, go tell my kids that today. That's <laughs> a Maria, yeah, yeah. And Maria, you and I have done that and we've, we've lived tried that. To. And that's we... why the champions Maria's lost her sister to brain cancer and started a charity to raise money for brain cancer. I, I got hit with this weird skin condition and I started a charity to help with that. There's, there's nothing too weird in your life listeners that you are passionate about that. You can't share your voice. Right. When you feel difference. the call, right. You know, when yeah. you say, Absolutely. You know, then you yeah. need to respond to it when you feel that you hear the voice and and, and it doesn't it, and it it doesn't always have to be world changing. No. It can just change no. the the neighborhood uh, community garden. You know, it does. Yes. It can just be something small. So let's yeah. get. Look, can let, can I? Yeah. Let yes. me share this one yes. thing with you real sure. quick. Yeah. When I moved back to Arkansas, I moved back to Arkansas about twelve years ago from D.C. I want to be home. My mother was getting older. And so it's been a great few years. She passed away, but mm. it was great being here with her. But we bought the house. My twin and I bought the house right next door to my mother because she wouldn't move out of the neighborhood, which is um, the community we grew up in. And uh, I remember a neighbor and we and we had a beautiful lawn and we painted and renovated the house and did all this stuff. And it was really nice because, you know, houses in old neighborhoods sometimes um, allowed to, you know, not look so good. And, and so we fixed it up and did the yard. And I remember a neighbor coming over a week or so after we had been in there and he said, you know, yard yard looks so nice. You are an encouraging everybody to cut their grass. Have you noticed all these people's lawns are looking really nice now? And um, and because they don't want anybody to say, oh, that lady, grass looks good, man, looks terrible. <laughs> but I remember thinking even those kind of situations are inspirational. You know, you can just by cutting your grass, you can make a difference in your community. And so I told my children, who are all these wonderful, wonderful adults now, and um, I tell my children all the time, whatever you do in your life, really make a difference. Do something special. And I have three amazing kids who listen, you know, and uh, and that that's what we try to tell parents. You can make the biggest difference in your city, your community, with your family, if you're willing to say, I can make a difference. Speak out. Use your voice with love and peace and encouragement and confidence 
and all of those positive things, um, you can make a difference. Ah, oh, awesome. I, I don't I, think I, we I can wanna... say anything else. Let's... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Kelly. Thanks, oh, I want to talk the fun okay. stuff. Let's okay. get to Hollywood. Okay. okay. I, I got to even. E, 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 I I said I want I want to talk the fun stuff. Hollywood. Even though I pronounced her name wrong, Uzo Adubo is one of my favorite actors. I love oh, her. Amazing. I loved her. Orange is the New Black. She was so amazing in that, and she was amazing in your movie. And of course, Matthew Modine. We know. So give us give us a little scoop on Uzo and Matthew Modine. We just got to hear some scoop because you were on the set when they were filming this. So. Uh, your, your book publicist, our producer, Katie said, there's a story with you and, uh, Mr. Oh, Modine, but, right. I, but I also, right. uh, we, we also want to hear a little bit what Uzo's like in person. Cause I just, love okay. Oh yeah, I do too. <laughs> well, the, uh, right before the movie started shooting, um, she asked to meet me and my family. So she came to DC. I went to DC and spent, we spent the weekend together. She is the absolute kindest person I've, I've ever met. She's just wonderful. And um, my kids fell in love. My son, who also watched Orange is the New Black, when he just found out she was going to play me, he was in awe. I mean, he was like, Ma, do you know who's going to play you? And I was, well, yeah, you know. And he said, no, you don't understand. She's my favorite actress in the whole wide world. And this She's was really before good. I met her. So he was awestruck that day. And my daughter and my granddaughter came down. And she was just so nice to them. You know, you expect, or I don't know what I said. I'd never met Hollywood actors. And um, so I didn't, you know, I had stereotypes. And she came in and sat down and started talking to the kids and talking to me and, and just asking me questions about my life. And then we went out for a couple of meals. We went to the African-American Museum. It just opened. She and I toured it together with a... Um, you know, just the two of us. And she was just amazing. And so I, and, and at that point, unlike my kids, I really did not know who much about her. You know, I have since learned a lot about her, but I didn't at that point. And, um, you know, she was just very kind and loving. And, uh, and at one point she said, I'd like to go off with your children, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. Go off with my children. <laughs> Talk to my children. And she said, No, I'm just going to take them to another room and we're going to have a conversation. And so when they got, they were gone for about an hour and a half. And when they got back, um, we finished whatever we were doing. And then on the way home, I said to the kids, what 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 happened? You know what it what occurred? And she said, and my daughter said, she just wanted to ask us what you would like as a mother. Hmm. And uh, and what we were like as kids growing up, and she, she wasn't, she's not a mother, so she felt like she needed to hear from the kids on what I was like as a mother, and uh, I thought that was the coolest thing ever to have her talk to them, and so she she was amazing. She she did a great job. I was really pleased with her performance, but she did things like she really studied me because. I don't, um, there's a scene where I'm talking to the congresswoman and the principal and people who haven't seen the movie will see it. And, um, and I'm using, well, you, you saying I use my hands a lot. I mean, that is, I, I cannot even stop that. And in, in that scene, she uses her hands as she talks. And so after I saw it, I said, so Uzo, do you, so you do you, like me, are you like me? You use your hands. She said, Never. <laughs> she said, I saw in a clip that you use your hands. And so it seemed real for me to use my hands. And so she really studied me. And I appreciated that because even to my own kids, um, they my son came out of the movie and said, oh, my God, my, she sounds just like you, you know. And there are parts of the movie where she does sound just like me. I can see myself in her. And so it, she was good. She she was good. We didn't have many funny things, but uh, Matthew and I had a really funny thing. And so I have to uh, tell you about that. Well, once the movie was done and all the actors that I met were wonderful, 
I fell in love with the young man who played my son. He, because he reminds me of my son, and uh, but I, but I fell in love with all of the actors. They, they were professional. They were wonderful. They were determined to get it right, and they did. And um, so it, it was a really pleasant experience working with Movie Picture Institute, who's a film company that did the film and the actors. It was. I didn't expect it to be such a great experience, and it was. And but after the movie was done, and so uh, we did a uh, pre-screening, a seven-city pre-release screenings, and we started in New York, which you know that's always like a big deal. And then we went to D.C. and then some other places. But so we're in Philadelphia now. And um, they're in this old theater that has these long steps. And so you go down all these steps and you um, get to the stage and it had lights around the stage. I thought there was a step up, but it, I thought it was flat, but it wasn't. It was, a, and there, there were 800 people in the audience and the actors, some of the actors and, and some of the staff. And I misstepped and fell like flat on my face with 800 people watching me. And uh, I was just going to let it in, like be dead or something, you know, <laughs> I wasn't going to give up. And then I, somebody, I felt somebody grab me and it was Matthew Modine. And he was like, oh my God, let me help you up. And are you okay? And he was like, is there a doctor in the house? And, <laughs> and then he said, um, he said, are you going to be okay? And then a group of young men helped me up. And at that moment, I realized that if I acted hurt, then people would lose the whole meaning of the movie. And, and we were getting ready to have a discussion about the movie they had just seen. And I didn't want these 800 people to leave the theater. And the only thing they remembered was me falling flat on my face. So I got up and I acted like I was okay, which, which I really was. You know, you how you you heard a little bit when you fall, but so after um, we did this great discussion and interacted with the audience and stuff at the end of it, Matthew came over and rubbed my foot. He, oh. he pulled my shoe off and he rubbed my foot. And, I, and he was like, are you okay? And in my brain, I was going, yeah, Matthew Modine is rubbing my foot. <laughs> no, I'm fine. And Katie didn't get a picture. <laughs> uh, uh, but it was the funniest thing. We should have laughed about this forever because I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm good. <laughs> you know, this is the memory I'll carry for the rest of my life. So it was, we have some moments, but the actors were all great. I mean, it, everybody was so kind and so loving and um it was just a really, really wonderful experience. And I had read where other people who had stories made about them didn't have such wonderful experiences, but mine was great. They were fair, they were honest, you know. Um, they incorporated my thoughts in, into every moment of that film. Um, they called me so many times when they were uh, uh, making it, when they were producing it, you know, at night I just sit up and wait for them to call me because they wanted to verify everything that's going on. There were some hard scenes. And the one you were speaking of earlier, Kelly, that's hard for me too. Uh, that's real hard, you know. Yeah. And I think of of this young man a lot, you know, who was murdered. And uh, so it, it was an amazing experience. One, I, I, I would go through any time, but, and then Maria, Never in a million years did I ever think anything like this would ever happen to me. God has been so good. I'm really blessed because, th but this is not just my story. And I hope your listeners will understand this is my story, but it's a story that has been duplicated by hundreds of thousands of parents all over the country. This is their story too. And um, I did this film to honor all parents who found their voices, who stood up for their children, who really wanted to make a difference in not just their kids' lives, but every child's life. 
I, I, that is so beautiful. I, I, I know Maria, I feel like I'm drinking at the well of wisdom I, and I, I, I cannot, I cannot let you go without asking you a question that <clears throat> is just, just coming to me, which is, so you're, you're, when I look at your life, I feel like this is a woman who has lived her purpose and accomplished her mission. And now, and you know, Maria and I are in the last half of our life. When one does that, when you, uh, you know, we have a lot of Olympians that win gold medals and then they get depressed because their whole life was about that and they have to find another purpose. So now that you have this huge accomplishment, you've gone down in history, you've got a movie, you've got a book, your life is, has, you know, when you hit the pearly gates, there's going to be a processional that rolls you right in and said, you know, Virginia Walden, come on in. I'm on in. And, Thank you. And so what where does Virginia Walden Ford go from here? What what wakes you up every morning? You know, I, I'm still concerned about children. I'm still involved in talking to parents, but I but I am at a different place. I am uh, an advisor more than a actual activist. I'm not in the midst of the fight, but I'm, my heart is still in the fight. Um, I told parents a long time ago, and I have repeated it recently, as long as I'm able, as long as I'm physically and mentally able, I will fight with them. I will never go away. And I'm sure the press and a lot of other people wish I would go away, but I won't. As long as I can, you know, I have four grandchildren and uh, who look up to me, who expect me to be there for them. But there are thousands of children around the country whose parents are just learning their voices and they need to hear from the elders. You know, growing up, the people that gave me the best advice were my elders, my grandmother, my great aunts. You know, they told me how to be a woman, how to move forward in life. And uh, as I got older and I could remember those, them talking to me, you know, um, it, they have stayed with me. They're in my heart and in my spirit. So as long as I'm physically and mentally able, I will fight for children to get a quality education. That's my thing. That's my fight. And, um, but I also will spend time with my kids and my grandkids. And, uh, but I'll do this as long as I can. I, you know, I have, um, this, the pandemic has been hard for me because I've not been able to travel. And I am, I, I am best at being in a room with a lot of people, a lot of parents, a lot of children. I I like that as much as anything I do. And so, uh, but I've, I've learned technology. I'm here today because I have learned because I still wanted my voice to be heard even during this time. So I will continue. Now I can add this on when I can't travel, I can do it virtually. And, and that's what I want to continue doing. I'm, you know, I'm not a kid, but I'm not uh, elderly. You're not, <laughs> you you're not done yet. <laughs> I'm not. Thank you. I ain't done yet. <laughs> so I will, I will be here. I will. Well, that's, that's wonderful. wonderful. Um, one last question for me. And then Maria, you can last ask the last question. What is your advice to heal race relations in this country? Mm. You know, I think about it and I think it, I, I, let me think, I got a call from a friend who happened to be white, right as things were um, being kind of the upheaval in the country early in the pandemic. And she was in tears. And this is somebody I just absolutely love. And an older woman, she and I have been through a lot together. We've known each other for over 20 years. And she was in tears and she said, Jenny, have I ever done anything to make you feel bad or or less than? Or, and I was like, no, <laughs> you know, we we have figured out how to work this this whole issue. At least she and I did. And I started talking, and and she calmed down, and we were okay. But I believe that we all have to work together. 
black and white, to make sure that the right messages are getting out, that we're understanding and we're hearing that if this country is going to make it, then we all have to work together. It's almost like, you know, the children, if the kids are going to, if, if, if the kids were going to make it during our fight, then we all had to work together to make sure that no matter what color, what race, what culture a child was, that child has the same um, ability to get into a school that better served them. And I think in America, we have to learn how to do that. I don't, I think that there's a, a lot of us who black, I used to joke and say, you know, I, I got three issues. I'm a woman, I'm black, I'm a single mother, you know, take me and leave me <laughs> because I do. And But I think that we just have to all start listening to each other and working together and hearing hearing what the other is saying and, you know, not being so, um, so quick in judging and, and either, on either side. I mean, I think it's just really hard. It's really hard for me because I have successfully um, got, gotten, have friends of, of every race and every culture. And I've not been, um, but I, you know, it's not been bad for me within my friends, but I have been in rooms sometimes where I could feel people not wanting me there or people not wanting to hear what I said. And if I, they spent too much time doing the legislative fight talking about that I was black because I'm so light skinned, I guess people questioned it. And so too many people said it you know, as if somebody had to say it, you know, you know, but my dad, again, I'm gonna go back to my daddy. My dad told me when I was, when, when he was the first black assistant superintendent of the Little Rock School District, and a lot of people, and this was 1957, and a, a lot, 67, and a lot of people didn't want him to get that job. My dad was the most wonderful, amazing man ever. And so everybody, within the school system, school administration wanted him to have a job, but there were other people. So two weeks after he got the job, the Ku Klux Klan burned across in our yard and threw a brick through our window. And it scared us, me and my sisters. I, there were five girls and we had a, a young baby. And uh, so it scared my sisters and my mom. And it, it made daddy pretty mad. But when he got over his being mad about the cross burning and the rock coming through the window. What he, and we were crying and we were really mad. And I'm, and I'm sure I was 13, 14. I'm sure I said something that I probably shouldn't have said and about the people that probably did this. And, and you know, my dad said, my dad said, I want you girls to understand this right now. When you grow up, you're going to try to be, um, kind and loving and Christian and 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 you're gonna not judge people based on and Dr. King said it, you're not gonna judge people based on their skin color. You're not gonna just automatically not like somebody because they're white or whatever. You're gonna choose your friends and your relationships and your um life on character and love. Period. And then he comforted us about what had happened. And he explained to us that there's always going to be people that try to push you into being something you're not. And interestingly enough, my pastor preached this yesterday. You go this, I mean, um, last Sunday. You're always going to find people that try to test, push you. They're going to push you to be not walking in Christ's footsteps, you know, and, and, uh, I remember, I remember that night like it was yesterday, and that's kind of how I shaped my life. You know, my kids were exposed to all kind of people, and I had friends, all kind of folks. And um, and I, I remember my oldest son graduated from college. I mean, this kid is really brilliant, and he graduated from college, magna cum laude, and then took a job in London. And somebody said to me, how a little black boy from DC get to London? And I said, he he's smart, he's capable, you know, he's been exposed to things. We live in DC, we went to Smithsonian every weekend, we had no money, 
they were free. And um, so my kids had all kinds of exposure. And so it didn't seem unusual for him to be going to London. You know, he applied for all of these internships and he got one in London with Price Waterhouse. And that wasn't unusual to me, but to the person that said that it was. And so, you know, I tried to teach the children to look at life like, you know, they that saying you get lemons, you make lemonade, you know, or, you know, look for the bright light of what all those kind of sayings. And that's why I tried to raise my kids. This is hard. And it's hard for me because because I'm African-American, people assume I only fight for African-American children. I fight for all children, every child. I fight for America's children, you know, and but of course I am African-American. So I want to make sure those our communities are served as well. But, you know, that that's always been really tough for me. So the the Dr. Martin Luther King saying that we need to judge people by the content of the, their but character and not the color of their skin. That's what Maria and right. I were, were raised on. And yeah, and so but I, I've heard that today that is not necessarily popular. Can you address that? Well, it's popular to, to me. Okay, it's popular but, to you. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are a lot of different views now, and a lot of the young people are saying one thing or another who have not been through what we've been through or haven't didn't know Dr. King or did not hear his um, sermons or his speeches, you know, um, and that's unfortunate, and that's why... There's you. You ask me, you know, what I'm doing now. You know, I'm getting older and all that, and my kids are grown, and my grandkids are almost grown. And um, but that's why it's really important that young people hear me, young people, listen to the wisdom of their elders. You know, it, it, whatever I am as a woman, it's because I still hear my grandmothers, both of my grandmothers. I still hear their voices in my ear. You know, sharing their lives. One of my grandmothers was a slave and mm -hmm. she has no bitterness and uh, she had no bitterness and she shared a lot of things with me. And so I think that's what we have to do. We have to remember that, you know, inside we're all the same and we have to find ways to get along. And we, you know, we okay. This is something my mother said to me one time: Do not listen to the loudest voice. Mm, that's a good. Listen one. to the voice of quiet. Don't that loudest voice ain't always the voice that's giving you the best information. <laughs> and I and I and I've done that, you know, all through my career, all during the legislative fight in Washington. I'm I'm not a screaming hollerer, you know, and I tell parents listen to my voice. We are going to walk in here and carry ourselves with dignity and grace. And we are going to be listened to beyond anybody else because we do know how to behave and how to get our voice heard. A reporter told me early in my career, she said, you know, the media sometimes will film people cursing and screaming and stuff. And those people get filmed one time and it shows on TV a bunch of times. But people like you, Virginia, they'll keep coming back to you because you're armed with information and you're kind and articulate. And, and see, that was part of my learning how to speak too. And, um, and, and quiet. I mean, I'm not... I can get excited, but basically I am a even-tempered, quiet person. And that's, my grandmother told us, when people look at you, they want, you want them to see you in honor, be honorable. And uh, and I think that's where I'm looked at. Even the the opposition has said that over the over years, you know, um, uh, the NEA, who was my biggest opponent during our legislative fight, Reg Weaver said, I don't want to debate her because <laughs> she is too nice and she <laughs> talks about the children and the parents and makes me look bad. Now, Reg <laughs> said that too bad, and he wouldn't. He would not debate me. So, 
because you, know. you carry you carried yourself with dignity. I, yeah. I love I love that. Well, you have been so amazing. I I cannot wait to share this podcast with every single person I know. This is you are just so full of, especially women. I mean, not to be sexist, but you you know you are such a great example. And thank you so much for all the wisdom and the beauty that you shared today. Yeah, we really well, appreciate having you. Well, Maria and Kelly, I look forward to meeting you at some point in my life. And uh, but I've enjoyed this very much. Thank and you thank so much. you for having me. You're Thanks welcome. for all you've done. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. It's now time for the takeaways. Maria, you and I have heard the takeaways are the best part of the show. That's right, Kelly, because the takeaways are curated information, which is what we give to our clients when we coach them. If you would like to take your performance to the next level in health, life, or leadership, go to our website and schedule your free 30-minute consultation. Yes, just click on our coaching page and book there. We're looking forward to bringing out the champion in you. And now, the takeaways. Oh, the takeaways, Maria, from Miss Virginia Walden Ford, the star of a Netflix movie. Actually, uh, she gets played by Uzo Adubo, Aduba, who is one of my favorite actors, even though I can't say her name. She's from Orange is the New Black. But Miss Virginia's story is out there on Netflix. We really encourage you guys to listen to the whole podcast. We got a lot out of Miss Virginia that isn't even in the movie. She's amazing. We said it was like drinking from the well of wisdom. Yes. And the takeaways, we had, we had many, many on this, but yeah. we aren't going to just We're do scrolling down each. notes. I, I, I yeah, have so, takeaways that I'm just going to keep to myself and just no. <laughs> okay. So what is your, uh, your first takeaway, Maria? You know, I, I loved just everything about this woman, but you know, one of the things that she said, and I asked her about in the interviews, you have a response she said, you have a responsibility to make a difference. And I, and I, and it doesn't have to be a big thing like she's doing, you know, but, but when you see a need, when you see, when you feel your heartstrings being tugged by something that's not right, then it's your responsibility to, to do something about it. So that would, that's one of my takeaways. And I, you know, I think I've taught my kids that, but I might not have said it right out. Right. So I, uh, that's something I want to carry away. Yeah. Even she said, even as small as mowing your lawn, mowing your lawn and making your yard look nice, then the street follows along. Yeah. There were so many takeaways, but one of the things that um, she said is finding your voice. And I asked her, how do you find your voice? And she said, we all have stories. Right. And so when she was trying to lead people and this was not an easy group to lead, right. She, she connected to people by telling her story. And so That's what I think the takeaway is, is know your story, share your story, no matter how uh, small you think your story is or how ununique you think your story is. It really is unique. I love to hear everybody's stories. You know, we always ask, what's your story, story, story. Tell me a a Kelly story. Tell me me a a story um, is, is find your voice and your voice comes through stories Mm. and your stories connect you to others. And then your message is heard through your story. So, uh, but there were, there were just, there were lots and I hope everyone will, will check them out, check out the whole, uh, the whole interview. It's a beautiful, beautiful interview. Yeah. Thanks so much to Miss Virginia. Well, Kelly, I love you. So great to be with you. you. Yes. I'm so glad we got to share this. Yes. 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 This is amazing. (laughs) We'll be talking about this for months. All right. Love you. Bye-bye. Love you too. Bye. This week's quote of the week comes from Virginia Walden Ford. You have a responsibility to make a difference. You've been listening to the Champions Mojo podcast with host Kelly Palace and Maria Parker. Champions Mojo is produced by Cobra Media and a new episode debuts every Tuesday. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Follow Champions Mojo on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Champions Mojo.